Take our Bibles, if you would, please, and open them to Revelation chapter 21. It's been quite a while since we've been in our study of Revelation. Uh, in fact, I began working on this particular message when Brother Craiglow was here. And I remember a comment that he made in his message in which he said that there needs to be more preaching on the second coming of Christ. And uh, he was speaking from Acts chapter 1. I don't know if you remember the message that he preached, but he was speaking from Acts chapter 1 about the disciples looking up into heaven as Jesus ascended there. And uh, he was talking about the angels that spoke to those that were looking. And the angel said, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which was taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And so Brother Craiglow said, This is what we need. We need more people looking for the second coming of Christ, always looking for Christ to return. And I really do appreciate it when we have uh, other speakers come, we have our missionaries come and and speak to us. And uh, I get the opportunity to listen to someone else, and I take the comments that they make gladly, and I find suggestions there for things that I need to change. But I'm happy that our church could not be justly criticized by anyone for not preaching about the second coming because we've been on that subject more or less for about three years now, talking about the second coming of Christ. And this is really, the second coming is a high point of Scripture because everything in Scripture is actually a part of God's plan to bring us to the point where Christ is revealed, where the entirety of heaven and earth is brought under his his rule, Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is really the high point that... uh, of Scripture and what we're looking for, when everything is in perfect submission to Him. Now, we're at a point in our study, though, when we are beyond the second coming, we're beyond the millennial kingdom, we're beyond the great white throne judgment, we're beyond the time when the world is destroyed, when evil is forever gone, the devil and his demons and wicked men are, are all forgotten at this point. And so all of the attention and all of the focus goes upon God and the blessing that God's people have of seeing him and living with him. And this is the last part of the revelation in which John sees eternity. This is his view of heaven, the promised home of God's redeemed. So these last two chapters that we have in Revelation speak of heaven, and we've just begun to unwind and unwrap this great teaching that we find in these two chapters. Now, this particular series of messages is on the first eight verses. That's where we want to look tonight, only I'm just going to read uh, the first five verses because that's as far as we'll go this evening. Revelation 21, verse number 1, John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God." And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true 
and faithful. Let me go ahead and read that sixth verse because we are going to get a little bit into that. Uh, And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. Now, since it's been such a long time, I think it's a good idea for us just to back up a little bit and to review some of the things that we've discussed previously in these first verses. And so we've talked about thus far the remake of creation, the radiant capital, and the residing companion. Those are the first three points on your listening sheet. And the remake of creation, that's speaking of the new heaven and the new earth that we find in verse number one. Uh, this is not a recreated earth. It's not the, or it is rather, a recreated earth. It's not an old renovated earth. But this is a new heaven, uh, a new atmosphere that God makes, a new earth that God makes, a new stellar heavens that God makes. In essence, we're talking about an entirely new universe. The former universe, this one in which we're living right now, has been infected with sin. And God will destroy it in order to create a new universe in the same way in which he created the first one. He made the earth by just speaking things into existence. And then God will do the very same thing with this new creation. Then the radiant capital is in verse number 2. That's the holy city of New Jerusalem, which God uh, has made to be the home of the bride of Christ. That is the church. The bride is the church, and the New Jerusalem will be their home. Uh, This city is the capital of heaven. It's not the old city. We talked about that. It's not the old city that's on earth, but this is the real Zion. When the Bible talks about Zion, this is the real one because this is an incorruptible city. It's always been in existence in heaven, and it's just now waiting for its inhabitants to take up their residence there. Then thirdly, we discuss the residing companion. The new heavens and the new earth are great, and this new Jerusalem is certainly great. It's an unimaginable city. But I really do think that the best part of this entire section is in verse number 3 where it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. That is the highest expectation of every Christian, and that is we shall see God, and he will live with us. Now, the word tabernacle in the scriptures means a tent, and it's used in the sense of a dwelling place. And it's really a a beautiful picture that's drawn out of Old Testament typology. John used this same language in the first uh, chapter of the Gospel of John when he said that Christ came and he dwelt among us. In chapter 1, he says that uh, in verse number 14 that Christ was made flesh and he dwelt among us. And that's that very same word tabernacle that we see in other places of Scripture. The same word that we find in Revelation to show us that it's surely... As Christ came and dwelt among the apostles, dwelt among men, that they were able to see him and touch him and be with him, so it will be with the invisible God. He will live with us in heaven. He will be our God, and we will be his people. So you have a perfect God with perfect people living in a perfect place. And there's no way that we can exceed that. I mean, there's nothing higher that we can look forward to. There's nothing that gets better than this. What more can you ask than we will see God and live with him? But there is actually more here. We don't stop with that particular verse. The revelation doesn't stop there, uh, although if it did, I'm sure there's none of us would complain. I mean, this is plenty enough. But God explains more, 
And he gives us even more assurance that everything that we have in this old world is gone and there is a new existence that far exceeds our wildest imagination. So we've never seen anything like it before. We have this sure hope that every bad experience that we've had in this life is not going to be duplicated in heaven. So I want to move on then to verses 4 and 5 this evening, and we'll take up two more parts of our discussion. And fourthly, let's talk about the removal of cares. In verse number 4, it says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. How is it possible for us even to understand just a little bit about what heaven is like? Now, we strain as we think of these physical characteristics of heaven. And as we go on a little bit further in this chapter, we'll learn more about the physical characteristics. Uh, It's a new place. And if you're interested in seeing new things, things that you've never seen before, then you'll have plenty of opportunity to explore heaven and everything that God will create. None of us has ever seen that before. But I could tell you about some things that are on earth that you've never seen before, and they would be new to you, and they would be interesting to you, very inspiring, and some of them exciting. I remember the first time that I uh, went to the Grand Canyon, and I stood there at the canyon, and, and really there's the photographs of it, the travel magazines and all those things that you pick up and read about that it really doesn't prepare you to see the place i mean you stand there on the rim of the grand canyon you look out across that and look down into the canyon it's really inspiring i mean it's really something to look at uh my dad loved to travel and and i remember when he went to the grand canyon he was very interested in in seeing new places Uh, My mom wasn't really very much interested in those kinds of things. But when my father went to the Grand Canyon, he was awestruck by that. And he he was always, when he was going on vacation, and he loved to go see the sights in different places. And uh, he he always used that as a um, evidence, you might say, evidence of the almighty sovereign God when he saw what God had made. Now, my mother, on the other hand, as I said, she wasn't too impressed by those things. And so when they went to the Grand Canyon, my dad was just amazed at what he saw. And my mother wouldn't even get out of the car. She said, you've seen one hole in the ground, you've seen them all. Well, we can go to the Grand Canyon, to Zion National Park. We could see all the natural wonders that there are in this country. Or if you have the opportunity to travel to other countries, we can see all the beauty of that. And we get lost in the wonder of it. But we know that we're not going to be able to stay there forever. That it's not going to be long before we'll think about all of the problems that we have and getting back to the things that bother us all of the time. I mean, we're not going to live there and just gaze over the edge of the Grand Canyon for the rest of our life. And whenever I go on vacation, I, I have just a few minutes to enjoy the sights that are there, and then as soon as I'm done with that, I'm worried about how in the world am I going to pay for this. So you have those problems, you have those, those cares. And my point here is that as beautiful as heaven is, heaven itself would not be sufficient to satisfy us for very long if there wasn't something very different about us. If we weren't different, then we would just, 
look at heaven, we gaze at that, and then we go right back to the same problems that we have here, thinking about all the things and all the stuff, all the ways that we've messed up and all the things we have to deal with in this life. So there has to be something very different about us as well before we're going to enjoy heaven. So verse number four tells us how how different that our lives will be. So how are you going to get that point across? How are you going to deal with that and make people understand how different their lives will be? Well, the way that John does this, the only way possible is to take all of the negative things that we experience on a daily basis and reverse those. And that's what eternity is going to be like. Every negative effect of the fall of man will be reversed. You see, when sin entered into the world, it was devastating to us in every way. Our thoughts, our motives, our will, our bodies, our spiritual abilities, everything was affected negatively, and everything in man was ruined by the fall. So we find here, as we look at heaven, that God is reversing all of those negatives. And the way that we understand this is that instead of God telling us what it's going to be like, which is something that we don't understand, he tells us what it won't be like. Because it's, he's talking about things that we have already experienced. We know what these things are. Now, I hope that makes sense to you, and I think that it does. So here we find a series of negatives telling us what heaven will not be like. Now, the first thing that John says here is that there is going to be no more crying in heaven. There won't be any tears. There won't be any sorrows. And those are the source of our tears. A sorrow is an inevitability for us. Job 5, verse 7 says, Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. So there's none of us that escapes life's sorrows. We're all born to it. Uh, There's never been a person that ever lived that didn't have cause for troubles and reasons for sorrow and crying. Our prayer page is filled with people that for one reason or another have sorrows or they're the subject of sorrows for others. And you can just go down the prayer page that we print every week and look at all those names, and you can see plenty of reasons for sorrow. Last month, we revisited 9-11. That was the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And I don't know how that affected you, but I watched some of those things on television again and sort of relived some of those experiences. And um, probably you remember what you were doing on 9-11. I remember what I was doing. But I looked at that again, and I was, I was just started choking up thinking about that again, just the devastation and all the lives that were lost. And so I look at our prayer page, and I see the results of that. I mean, I see names of people that are in the military that we're praying for, and, and they're in Afghanistan or in Iraq, and you think about all the tension that's there, and, and you think about the anxiety that you have about those men could possibly be wounded or killed. And then we have people on our prayer page that have been diagnosed with cancer. And our heart goes out to them because they're facing such a dreaded disease. Just last year, my wife was diagnosed with chronic liver disease. And the first thing that the doctor told us when um, he said, here's the problem, the first thing he told us was we could very likely be dealing with cancer. And so until those tests came back for those few days, it was really gut-wrenching, really a lot of anxiety thinking about what she might have to face if she had cancer, which we found out that that wasn't the case, and uh, things got better at least in a sense, but she's still dealing with another disease, and, and that disease can be deadly as well. 
So these aren't pleasant thoughts. And if you have friends and relatives that are listed on the prayer page, then you know that there is a lot of sorrow that goes with that. And you shed tears for that. And and maybe you even shed tears for yourself if you're on there. Uh, It's just really, really hard to think about just so many things that people have to go through. And then probably one of the worst ones is, when I think about it, is the death of a child. And I was talking to uh, Pauline earlier uh, today as we, the services were over, and we're talking about this young little, this little baby that's seven months old that just died of, of SIDS. And that is a terrible thing. And it just I don't know about you, but those kinds of things just really go all over me. And I think that it does because I think about my own grandkids, and I think, what would I do if something like that happened to one of them? And just, again, thinking of it just ties my stomach up in knots. So I will pray for my daughter, for instance, who's down in San Diego and her husband and our grandkids there because they have to get on those crazy freeways down there and drive 25 or 30 minutes to get to church. And I think about what would happen if they had an accident? What would happen to those kids? So we sorrow not just for things that that have happened to us, but we also sorrow over things that could happen to us. That's just human nature. And it's been that way ever since the Garden of Eden, since the fall of man. See, this is what God said to Eve after she and Adam ate of the forbidden fruit. In Genesis 3.16, unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, many times that's taught as if the only thing that... Uh, God was talking about there was sorrow in childbirth, how, how difficult that it would be for women to have children. But the verse is actually talking about the difficulty of raising children all through their lives, that that would be a very troublesome thing. And you think about kids, sometimes they turn out wrong, and, and uh, that's a really a big problem when a kid turns out wrong. But even the ones that turn out right, you still have this problem that you have to discipline them, and you really don't want to do that. So just raising children itself, there's a lot of joy in that, but there's also a lot of sorrow. So you think about children, you think about your friends, your relatives that are sick, you might be sick, and there are many tears that are shed. And, of course, when people die, tears are shed. I, I, again, I think about uh, children, and we had a friend in, in Kentucky that just uh, two or three years ago had a nine-year-old grandchild that died of leukemia. And so just, just thinking about those things is really hard uh, to do. So on the back of the prayer page, also, we have other names. And uh, if you're familiar with that and you come on Wednesday nights, then you know on the back of the prayer page we have salvation needs. And if you had just an inkling of what hell would be like, if you just got a little bit of that from those sermons I preached a few months ago about hell, then you know that just the thought that somebody that you know, uh, a friend, a relative, someone close to you dies without Christ, you shed tears about that and you just pray to God that somehow that they will believe and they won't leave this life without Christ. So that's what we live with every day. And there are thousands more examples that that I could give you. But heaven then wouldn't be really too great. Even with all the beautiful sights that are there, it wouldn't be very great at all if we had to return to or we had to live with all of the time throughout eternity sorrows and tears and heartaches and troubles that we have in this life. But in this verse, we find that there is hope here 
Because all the reason for the tears have been vanquished. All the reasons why we would be sad have been taken away from us. You know, there are some who think that when we get to heaven, that we'll think about all the subjects of uh, life here on earth. We'll think about a friend who died without Christ, and we'll go into heaven shedding tears as we go through the pearly gates. Well, this is not what the verse means. It doesn't mean that God is going to dab away tears. No, at the time that you get ready to enter into heaven, all of those kinds of thoughts are gone. All the reasons are gone. And this is because our minds have been changed to be like Christ. And so we'll not enter into heaven with any tears. The Bible says the former things have passed away, and all things have become new. And then you notice there that he says that pain will be gone. Some of you live with pain constantly. It might be physical pain. It... Uh, might be that you're just looking for a little bit of relief from your pain or it might be emotional pain and that's sometimes the cause of sorrowing crying and the scripture says about that no more neither shall there be any more pain pain is a huge issue in our country today i mean there's a a multi-billion dollar industry that deals with just this one thing drugs to take away our pain And so you read here in verse number 4, and and perhaps you don't think too much about that. You don't think too much about pain because if you have a problem, you just pop a pain pill and everything's nice and you feel real good for a while, you can get rid of pain. But go back and think about the Apostle John and the time that he lived in. There was no way way to deal with those kinds of issues. Now, remember when we first started this study, we talked about how that the Apostle John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And uh, many people believe that the reason that he was was because the Roman government had attempted to boil him in oil to kill him, but he didn't die. And so they just exiled him to this rocky island called Patmos. And can you imagine for a moment the pain that that must have been uh, to have flesh that's boiled in oil, the soreness, the pain of that? Surely this, this scripture must meant, have meant something to John to say that there is no more pain. And then, of course, there are many other people living at the time of the Apostle John. As I said, they didn't have any way to deal with these issues of pain. And then we've read in the scriptures about martyrs that died for Christ. And throughout the history of the church, there have been many martyrs. And one of the things that that people have done in their persecution of Christians, they have been very inventive in the ways that they torture and killed people that were Christians, any ways that they could inflict pain. So you can imagine that a verse like this has a lot of meaning to people that really can't deal with the issue of pain. But John says, neither shall there be any more pain. Now that's a negative way of saying it, but that helps us to understand because we have experienced that. And now, or in heaven at least, all of that is gone. But here's one of the most important statements that we find in the verse. It says, and there shall be no more death. So secondly, there are no more cemeteries. There are no cemeteries in heaven. Now, isn't that one of the main promises that we have in Scripture? Jesus died on the cross and he arose from the dead, demonstrating power over death. He ended death. Hebrews says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So that's the main purpose, that Christ became incarnate. He came in the human body in order that he might die. And if he died, 
then he must have the power to come back from the dead or else all hope is lost. And so Jesus did arise from the grave. He destroyed death and destroyed the one who brought death. You see, one, one of the most graphic ways that this became real to me was when uh, we were in Israel and we were at the Mount of Olives and we were overlooking the eastern side of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And so we walked down from the Mount of Olives and across the Kidron Valley to enter into Jerusalem. And as you're walking down that that hillside, on the left-hand side of you, there's a cemetery. And I have a picture of that for you here. It might be a little bit blurry. I don't know why those turned out so fuzzy. But there's a a cemetery, and these are above-ground. It's an above-ground cemetery. And then in the next picture, you see where they put rocks on on the top of the graves. Now, in Israel, they don't put flowers on the graves. They put rocks on top of them. And that's a whole lot cheaper probably than flowers, so it's probably a good, good thing to try to do. But they put these rocks on top of, of these graves. Well, the site of all of those graves on the eastern side of Jerusalem overlooking the city, that was just a reminder to me that Christ one day is going to come and rule in Jerusalem. And for all of his people that are in their graves, God is going to call them out of their graves. All the graves will be opened. All the bodies of God's people will come out of their graves, and Christ will show that he's truly conquered death forever. Now, unfortunately, in this picture that you see here, this is a Jewish cemetery. It's one of the holy sites around Jerusalem. And sadly, those that are in those graves, most likely none of them will be resurrected to the the life of, of heaven. Instead, they'll be resurrected to the second death and be taken, their bodies taken into hell. I read this comment by J. Vernon McGee on this passage. He said, I once knew an engineer who in the early days had a great deal to do with the planning and plotting of the great freeways which crisscross this country today. I asked him, is it going over the mountains or down through the valleys or crossing the rivers that's the biggest problem for you? He replied, the big problem is missing the cemeteries. And then McGee said, this earth is a great cemetery today, but all of that's going to end There will be no burying ground in the new Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that death is swallowed up in victory. He let us know that death is defeated forever. And so in heaven, there's no one who will ever grow older. There is no decay there. Every form of death is gone, and heaven is a place of life. There's only life in heaven because of the victory that Christ had over the grave. And then to sum up that point, Thirdly, we see that there is no more curse. Now, of all the reasons, all the reasons for tears and and pain and sorrows and death, all that's gone, and it's gone because the curse is gone. God destroyed that when, when he blew the old creation out of existence. And so the new heavens and the new earth, this new universe, is incorruptible. There is no sin there. And and we might also look at this that heaven is forever purged of sin. I know that might seem like a very strange statement, but do you remember that Satan was allowed to appear before God after he sinned? He's the accuser of God's people, and the Scripture says he appears before God as our adversary to complain against us. And he's constantly reminding God of our sinfulness. Now, at one time, Lucifer, who we know as Satan, sinned, and there were angels that sinned with him. Now, where do you suppose that that rebellion and that sin took place? 
took place in heaven. So at one time there was, although strange, there was sin in heaven. But we also remember that in chapter 12 of Revelation that God removed Satan's access to heaven. And even though there is no angel since the fall of those original angels that can sin any longer, I mean, there are no other angels that are added to that rebellion of Satan, and there is no human in heaven that can ever sin, yet I think God makes the point to us that all the remnants of the curse, all of that is is gone. Heaven is not going to be a place where there can be any sin. But mainly we need to think about the curse that was put on man, the curse that was put upon the earth. And the great impact of the curse is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, or the great impact of that curse being lifted. And we read in Isaiah 53, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As we hid, as it were, our faces from him, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And so the complete fulfillment of those verses is when Christ takes away all effects of the curse. Our grief is gone, our sorrow is gone, our sins are gone. The hostility that we have against God is gone, and so we are healed in every way, physically, mentally, and spiritually. So God's going to take all of that away. And we have these negatives here to accentuate the positives so that we can understand it. Now, I want to finish then with this thought in verse number 5. It says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So fifthly on your lesson sheet is the reign of the Creator. Now notice it says, He that sat upon the throne. For the past 50 or 60 years, every public school child in America, every student in a public university has been force-fed an education that insists that humans and animals are the product of an evolutionary process. There is no room for a sovereign creator God in that system. And we would have to ask, if, if they say that they believe in God, and if they're right about the evolutionary process, we would have to ask, why does man have a spirit? I mean, did the spirit evolve? What about the spirit in animals? Did that, did that evolve into the spirit of man? And are, why aren't animals self-aware like man is self-aware? Is that an evolution of the spirit? You can see that on many, many different levels that evolution is completely incompatible with Christianity. And so if they say that they believe in God, they have to believe in a very different God than the one that's in the Bible. Now, this verse emphasizes that the one who sits on the throne is the sovereign God, and the one who occupies that throne is the only one who can create. Only God can create. And he does that by divine fiat. He does that as an act of his own will. He creates when and where that he pleases. He doesn't need processes. He doesn't require millions and billions of years to make a fish or a reptile or an elephant or a man. He made all things by speaking the word. And he can destroy all things whenever he wants. And God can start it all over again any time that he wants. He makes all things new in the twinkling of an eye. So God is on the throne. 
And every system that man has ever devised that tries to remove God from the throne, whether it's socialism or communism or humanism or atheism or any other idea that man has and tries to replace God, this is a reminder to us, the ultimate reminder that God is still on the throne. No matter what man says, God is the sovereign creator and he's on the throne. Now, verse number five that we're reading here is beyond the time when there's anyone left to doubt God. All the Christ rejectors are gone, and all those that said that God didn't do it, they're gone, and it's too late for them. What God has done is to step on them like ants. I mean, even with less effort than you would squash an ant, God is able to get rid of all that, and so all of their speeches and all their grandstanding is nothing more than a pipsqueak noise in the ears of God. He's the creator. And that's one great truth that we find in this passage. And I'll give you one more, and there's probably many more that we could dig out of it, but the the next one is that God completes the new creation. We're reminded here that men are in heaven only because God has made it so. Now, there's some who like to take credit for that. I mean, surely they think God has left something in salvation, something that we can do. Isn't there something that we can take credit for? But Scripture teaches that salvation is none of man's work. It's all of God. He makes all things new. He's the one that made the worlds. He's the one that made heaven. He's the one that makes the new man. And he's the one who makes him a new creation in Christ. And he doesn't need our help. He doesn't want our help. And if you try to give him your help, he won't take it. You'll never get his help if you try to offer your help. Now, the beginning of verse number 6 says, It is done. And you remember that Christ spoke some similar words when he was on the cross? When he made the atonement for sin and when his suffering was over, when he was ready to give up his life, he said, It is finished. And that meant that he had accomplished everything that he came to do. He gave up his life. Salvation was done. Redemption was accomplished. And so in that sense, it was done. But we also know that in another sense, Christ's work was not done because what it did was to set in motion the beginning of the end. So there was the resurrection that was still to come. There was still the rapture that was in the future. Still the kingdom is to come. All of it was made possible by the cross. I mean, that's why we can come to Revelation 21. That's because of the cross. That guaranteed that all of this would happen. But here we find in this scripture that God says it is done. Now, what that means is this is the end. This is the end of redemptive history. It all concludes here. There's nothing left here. All all things are completely finished. Nothing is left to be done. And so what has God done? He's called us. Christ died for us. The Holy Spirit drew us to the Father. We were saved by faith. We received the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We were judged in Christ at the cross. Our body at this point has been resurrected. The kingdom has been established. The saints have ruled with Christ on earth. Satan has been forever defeated. The rewards have been given to God's people. And so there's nothing left to be done. Redemptive history has been concluded with verse number 5. And so the new creation has reached the final place that God intended it to be. It started out in Genesis 1-1. Within the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And from that point, the Bible is the unfolding story of what happened and then what God did about what happened. He created people to glorify him, and they will glorify him. And there are a lot of steps between Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 21, verse 6. 
Thousands of years of history have already occurred. Who knows how many thousands more that there will be? Could be a long time. But here, John sees when man has reached the purpose of his creation, it's nothing but glory and honor to God for all of eternity. Now again, this book could have stopped at this verse, and who would complain about that? I mean, haven't we seen enough here to be content? I mean, even without any further revelation of any future events, we've already seen enough of God's providence, of his mercy and his grace. We've seen enough to be content. I mean, there's, there's already here enough and more than enough that we can praise God forever and ever. But it doesn't stop here. Now, it's, it's just like God to keep piling on the blessings. As the song says, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So he has more for us. And thank God he does because that's what keeps preachers in business. Uh, there's never going to be a day when we can exhaust all there is to talk about God. So God says, as far as redemption is concerned, it's done. God is done. But for me and you, we're never going to be done because eternity is not long enough to praise God enough for all that he's done in saving us from our sins and giving us this place in heaven. And I talked about these kinds of things to Brother Mongo and We'd just be sitting there talking, and all of a sudden, he's kind of like the Apostle Paul. You know, know, Paul, as I've explained to you many times in Paul's writings, he's just prone all of a sudden to stop and give you a doxology. That's that's Brother Mwango. He'd just stop and say, I sure do love God. I sure do love God. Well, that's why that we keep coming to church. That's why we keep reading God's Word. You know, I can finish a novel, I can finish a movie, I can finish a TV series and waste a whole lot of time doing that, but I'm never going to finish this book. And not a single moment that we spend in it is ever wasted. Well, we've come to the end of this message. Glory to God for that, you're probably thinking. But uh, I'm not done. I'm not done with this series, and so we're going to come back next time and next time and next time and next time and a whole lot more next times until God says, well, you're finished now. You can, you can stop now. We'll keep preaching until he says that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we read in your word tonight and just the joy to think about heaven, think about all the troubles and cares that we have and to know that all of that's going to be removed from us, all the sorrows, all the pain. What a place that heaven will be. And best of all, as we've seen Uh, you'll be there and you'll live with us forever and ever. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us, that you considered us, that you sent Jesus in the world to die for us. And what a wonderful, wonderful blessing it is to think about our death even, to think about we're going home to be with you. Thank you, Lord, for heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's